the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. Welcome back to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. That was the book of Exodus, chapter 10, verse 13. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. I'm another one of your hosts. I am Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I'm the last host, Michael Scavarlo with Penn State University. And last host is not the same as it would be in the Bible. Uh, this is not going to become a Bible <laughs> podcast. Uh, today we are talking about the Rocky Mountain locust. And I, I like connecting the locust to its historical context as like this uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse kind of thing uh, in the biblical sort of aspects of it. So uh, I hope you appreciate that. We're going to be diving into Jeffrey A. Lockwood's book. Uh, from 2004, just simply titled Locust. Uh, we're very excited about our first ever book club. At least Mike and I are. Uh, Jody maybe has a different attitude about book club. This is my first ever book club. Yeah? Ever like in your ever. whole life? Yeah, I don't read good. I thought you were going to say it was <laughs> the first ever book in your life. That's no, I love, I mean, I love textbooks. I love, I can even read like scientific papers because they're split up into sections right how-to books all that stuff but this book wasn't wasn't jamming with you the print is very small there are no audiobooks i tried i even tried to pay my daughter to read it to me wow she said how high did you go a dollar a page (laughs) (laughs) didn't jump at the potential for like 250 bucks she looked at it and was like no I'll read it to you for a dollar a page. Yeah, for real. You, I, you should have told me that two weeks ago. I would have recorded myself reading it. We could start our own audiobook company. I bet there's uh, all kinds of copyright issues. With that. That's that's true. But if we don't charge for it, anyway, uh, this book is a, I guess, natural history history book. Uh, that looks at the devastation wrought by the Rocky Mountain locust in the Western United States. Uh, we're going to be talking about some pioneer history, uh, talking about folks moving out west and taking land, uh, the burgeoning imperial United States and its uh, manifest destiny. Mike, I don't know how much you want to jump in on some of that when we get to it. I Yeah, I definitely have thoughts about the way the book's presented and how it presents that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in particular, I think that we'll be highlighting what seems to be kind of the last gasp of the locust which is this 1874 to 1877 or 1878 outbreak, uh, which afflicted much of the heart of what is now the United States. So Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, I believe Missouri and Minnesota and Iowa are thrown in there as well. Uh, If you look into this book, uh, it is widely available. You can find it on any of your reputable booksellers. We hope that you'll read it and join along with us in the book club aspect of this. Uh, you can form a very parasocial relationship with us and, and pretend that you're at the table listening and talking. 
Or send uh, us an email and form a social relationship with us. Absolutely. Yes, we would be very happy for that. <laughs> uh, you can uh, tag us on Twitter, Arthro underscore pod show, and tell us what you think about this book. Uh, we've kind of covered already. Jody wasn't vibing on sitting down to read. I Guys, I just fall asleep. If I stop moving, I fall asleep so many times. I think times. that's more indicative of your like sleep schedule, that maybe you need more sleep. <laughs> it's not an indictment on books. Uh, I don't, yeah, I mean, I would have fallen asleep at maybe at any of the books, but I don't know. I, I'm really proud of myself that I read it. I'm really proud of you too, actually. When you texted and said that you finished it, I, I had a swell of pride in my heart. I was pretty excited when I started reading it and I was like, I got so much done. And then I looked and it was like chapter one. So like <laughs> I read the acknowledgements and the introduction and I was like, oh, what? I didn't read the whole thing because oh. of the... Yeah, the way that it was kind of presented in that way, because I, are you not supposed to read those parts? I, I have, I don't, I don't know. I'm not always an acknowledgements person. Like I, I get the need for them, but sometimes I'm like, yeah, okay. I get it. You have friends. Like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. How do you feel, Mike? I've never read the acknowledgements unless I'm in it. Yeah. Oh, gosh. But how would you know if you're, oh. They tell you. Okay. And then do you read all the notes, like the footnotes and then there's notes and like the index at the back? Like I read all those things. Okay. Maybe that's why, like I fell asleep so many times and the, the, all the, um, you know, and then the first page is all the acclaimed. Right. Like that puts me to sleep too. Wait, you yeah, started, you, you read that? I read from front, from front to back. That's why sometimes I never get into the meat of the book because I fall asleep. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm done with this. This is not very fun. Unless it's about a specific thing that I'm looking for. Uh, Follow Jody like... online for more reading tips. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we need to go into Jody's house and like just take a knife to the acknowledgement section. So she just starts at page one. It's true. It should be at the back. Yeah. The... I mean, skip the Roman numeral pages. What about sure. prologues and stuff? No, is that their call? Yeah, Pro, prologues is different. I mean, that's usually needed material. <laughs> I read it. I mean, yeah. I fall asleep reading it. Think of it like a prequel. Like that's that's episode three of Star Wars. Guys, I don't even pages. do. I don't even do movies that have sequels. I I actually was trying to come up with <laughs> pop culture references that would fit this book to discuss with you, and it's very difficult for both of you. Uh, I don't know that it would work, <laughs> so I gave up on it. Uh, but I think today what we'll talk about is kind of the devastation wrought by this bug, what it means historically, uh, probably end with the discussion of some folks who kind of loom large in the history of this story, as well as entomology in general. Uh, one of the big, big, big people in our science will come into this story in a big way. And then we'll have a second episode where we'll dive more into the biology of this insect and learn more about it and its mysterious disappearance. I'm trying to put a true crime angle on this. Well, that's funny because that's <laughs> what he does in the book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It takes a weird turn from natural <laughs> history to like, oh, this murder. So there we go. So do we want to talk about, before we dive into like the actual bits of the book, like the broad outlines of how this thing is laid out? Yeah, absolutely. As a book. Yeah, lead us um, through that, Mike. It, it kind of threw me. So this is not the first time I've read this book. Uh, I read it as an undergrad back in 2008 or seven ish. Uh, and actually John likes to tell this story. When I asked uh, my now wife out on our first date, 
uh, I talked about Rocky Mountain Locust because I was in the middle of reading this book, like as we were walking along the sidewalk. And she tell she has told me since that she's like, this is really weird, but he's really cute. So I guess this is fine. <laughs> what part were you talking to her about that was super weird? Just the idea of Rocky Mountain Locusts in general and the devastation they wrought and these that they went extinct and how weird that was and how cool the bugs were. I mean, I think info dumping is one of your more charming attributes. So yeah, I can see why that led to marriage. <laughs> um, so this isn't the first time I've read the book. Uh, but it was still jarring this time around, like the way the book is set up, um, because it is like the first half or th- two thirds of the book is the history of Rocky Mountain Locust, the biology of it, what we know from historical records, putting those historical records into context, um, the the founding of the entomological commission that investigated Rocky Mountain Locust, and then kind of how they petered out and disappeared and likely went extinct. And then there's this hard shift into I, Jeffrey Lockwood, came onto the scene and this was a cold case. And like he starts framing it as this murder mystery. uh, And it's like, it was a cold case and everybody who had proposed how it went extinct was wrong. And I was there at the right time and I solved it. And here is how I did that. And then it's like a, a walkthrough of the research he did, which is well written in in a lot of it and interesting because like he not to spoil it but like they're going up to glaciers to pull grasshoppers out of ice um and doing dna work with these glacier grasshoppers and like it's cool but the the shift is like is like i said really jarring um and if you're not expecting it it's like okay this is really two books that they jammed into one book yeah I guess like if editor if we're if we're talking editorially, I feel like there are better ways to have threaded some of this needle, I guess. Yeah. Of of I would have maybe opened with some of that of like here's here I am. And he, he does that somewhat, right? Like there's a part in the beginning where where does he talk about being on a glacier? In the intro. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it starts in 1875 and then it's August 1995. And I think I would have started with that because to me that feels more like the opening to Jurassic Park of having people like excavate a mystery and then like, yeah. okay, here we go. Like let's let's get into it. Uh, right. And it was beyond... like it was like go in ahead, the Jody. first it was in the, like the first paragraph of that part two in the like August 1995. So you skip ahead and then all of a sudden it's like, God damn, Jeff. And I'm like, what what's happening? And then it was like. Get the bleep um, machine out, jeez. Yeah. Oh, sorry. That's a quote, though. <laughs> I can. I know how to bleep. I've done it. Um, but then it's like, it, it was like we or me or yeah, we. And I'm like, oh wait. And then I was like, okay, who? Oh, he's in the book, you know. And then I was like, okay. And then it went back somewhere else. So I was like, this is so confusing, and I probably fell asleep. But at that time. Like with the intro, I didn't know like the intro was going to be the whole story wrapped up into the intro. Right. Oh, yeah. See, I forgot that that part had happened by the time I got to the end of like the historic section. Uh, and maybe that's on me for forgetting that that single paragraph in the introduction. But like you're 150 pages in and like, you know, I'm I'm jazzing along with this like history of the locust. And then I don't know. It just, it, it was jarring to me again, even though I knew it was coming. 
Yeah, I guess like if if we're doing this critique, I would have opened Glacier picking the locust. What is this locust? Why is it important? And then the middle part of the book is returning to the glacier and then going down the line of my cold case, you know, and figuring yeah. out what happened to it. Uh, but I think I think this was his first big book. Uh, he had written before for other like magazines and stuff, American Entomologist. I don't know if he's going to listen to this podcast episode. I don't know if he like has a Google alert set up <laughs> when Locust gets published about. But uh, I guess if we're if we're talking about this as a book book, I think it's an important book. I remember this in 04, like I was in high school and there were people like in my community back in Indiana. They were they talked about this book like it came up in conversation in my biology class um, as like, oh, you know there are people writing these scientific books. I think it did bring entomology kind of into a, a into the national conscience a little bit at, at one point in time. So I think it's an important book for that. Uh, it's well marketed and everything as well. So I don't want to make it sound like we're dogging. I mean, it is almost 20 years old at this point. I, yeah. I mean, even with my criticisms, like I would recommend people read it. Like I, I certainly enjoyed a lot of the book um, and it does um it does tell the story that you know for has basically been memory hold like this was a major problem in in the united states um and you know it kind of petered out and then is a is a nation we just kind of forgot that it even happened or that it was a big deal um so like bringing that back to the forefront and telling this story in a concise way where people don't have to dive into like the multi-thousand page uh, entomological commission reports or scientific papers. Like I really appreciate it for that. Um, so like I, I do have my criticisms about how it's laid out and parts of it, how it's written, but even regardless of that, like I would, I'd give it like a four, three and a half or four out of five, like definitely still nice. read it. Um, I just, there's certain parts that I read and I'm like, ah, this is <laughs> painful. Fair enough. Jody, any book criticisms? Well, as a Canadian transplanted in Nebraska by choice, I thought it was very, it was, it was good. I would recommend it because I learned a lot about history and I can understand and empathize with people here in Nebraska that are so fearful, like, and why they have that fear and why, I mean, I guess being married into like family of farmers too. Mm-hmm. Um, just what, what they went through and what the stories get passed down as in those descriptions sounds terrible. Um, so I, I, I did learn a lot. And I, I also, when I was walking around the farm with Rodney, my husband, I was like, Hey, I'm reading this book. And because I was so proud that I was reading this book, I was like, I think it's a really important book because this locust really shaped like what we plant in the landscape in people's perceptions. And I was like, I learned a lot about everything around me every day, I guess. So I don't know if I would have ever read it otherwise. So thank you for making me read it. (laughs) And I also loved learning about the entomologists that I've heard about and, and known things a little bit here and there. And and I liked that part. I don't know if I, I agree with uh Mike with the 
religious parts or there's some parts like kind of could have maybe been less dragged out. I, I very, I'm very intrigued by that argument. So let's maybe dive in and start there. So the, the first half of the book is sort of a, histi- a historiography of what goes on in the middle part of the United States as it's growing. So there's territories and new states. We're talking post-Civil War. It's a nation that is not floundering necessarily, but definitely heavily in debt. You know, millions of people are dead from war. And now we are seeing uh, pestilence in different parts of the land. And now we're seeing famine looming large. Uh, A lot of this is framed in very religious terms of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, It would be a very religious nation at the time. So I could see why, you know, people would have have experienced this through a religious lens. Uh, And I kind of like having that that perspective brought to the issue. Uh, I thought that Lockwood bringing in the fact that People thought cicadas were locusts because they had no frame of reference for a large group of insects other than locusts. And so that's how that name kind of gets stuck here in the United States. It's pretty interesting. Uh, And hearing people, I guess maybe it's the Catholic in me, like hearing people say like, oh, we've been bad and wicked. And that's why the bugs are here uh, is interesting. I I don't know. uh, What were what were your reactions to that from your both of your perspectives? I mean, I I liked that section um because like you said he uses he he frames what is happening through the lens of religion because that's how the people at the time viewed it and going back and forth like is this are we being punished because we're sinful and this is like the wrath of god coming or is this the devil making these grasshoppers come and these innocent farmers are just you know the getting the short end of the stick Um, And it's interesting because that does then, like, there are uh, governors who have days of prayer to, like, intervene with the locusts. So it it explains that. And it also explains um, why getting federal funding and state funding to help these farmers can be so difficult sometimes. Because if you're blaming the wicked farmers for this grasshopper plague, that is their fault because they're big sinners. Like, well, then we shouldn't help them. But if they're innocent farmers that... Are getting the raw end of the deal, then then we have an obligation because it's not their fault. So I like how he sets that up, but the whole section feels dragged out, like it could have <laughs> shaved maybe ten pages off of it. Uh huh. Um, it's it it just takes forever. Uh, I appreciate the the framing of it, um, but yeah, and and I wish there would have been more uh, like direct quotes if he could have found them from people that actually experienced it. Like he pulls in, in this section, like extended quotes from like Little House on the Prairie, Mm -hmm. which is a work of fiction. And as far as I know, Laura Ingle Wilder uh, was not present in any of these locust outbreaks. And so she's just like, I'm sure she heard stories, but she's ultimately making it up. And so it feels weird to like use that as a source to describe how these outbreaks are happening. Like, I don't, it could have been like a paragraph of, and look at how it, this influenced pop culture. It got into little house on the prairie. Right. Um, right. So that, that part was weird. Um, but as a framing device to set up then how states and federal government reacted to the farmers, because they did often get into this, like they left them out in the cold often or gave them like the bare minimum of help. Um, right. I, I do think it helps explain the reaction. 
I think we'll dive into that more, but it is very convenient to be able to say, oh, well, God already has judged these folks. We do not need to help them. Uh, the Almighty has shown us through his locusts who deserves what. Uh, so, yeah, I think we'll parse through that when we get to C.B. Riley, maybe, uh, and talk about some of his reactions to this religious nature of, of pest control. Uh, Jody, what did, what did you think of some of this religious framing? So these were my notes. Locust and religion. It was either the work of godless nature uh-huh. or the devil. Um, did it have like the the green imps of Satan? Yeah, the green imps oh. of Satan. Yeah, yeah. So so there's that, and or it was God sent these insects to punish the people for their sins. So this right. is an angry God, and so what they could do is pray penance and then the fasting store food and observe the sabbath so these were like what they needed to do to try to please god so that god would not send (laughs) the locusts so So it's just like yeah yeah. so like couldn't they just said said it like that Uh, i guess i maybe i have a different reaction than you two then because i wanted more of the mormon story like to me that is an interesting angle to this. Like this is a people who view themselves as sort of biblical characters. I get like, I don't want to speak as an authority on the the church of the Latter-day Saints, but they, they are expelled from multiple States and they're pushed West. And it feels like a sojourn through the desert or an Exodus, if you will, uh, if you're into Christian mythology and then they get locusts. Like to me, that's, that would have been a that's a fascinating angle to their story. And he does have a lot of their reactions, which seem to stem up from what Jody was mentioning, this whole like, are these of the devil? Are these of God's punishment? Like, how do we react to this? Uh, to me, that's an interesting angle, but perhaps Mike is right. Uh too too much is rested upon it, or too many pages spent upon it. Well, I don't I agree. I don't think that he gives the Mormon side of the story enough page space because he does talk about it, but it's very it's fairly short. Uh, most of the religious framing is from like a Protestant or Catholic uh, view in, you know, most of the plain states and not the Mormons out in Utah. Very um, Lutheran, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, there may have, I mean, the reactions were largely the same, but there maybe could have been more direct compare and contrast between the two different religious kind of takes on it, too. So we're kind of beating around the bush here. Uh, we're talking about some of the framing devices that Lockwood used. Let's talk about exactly what it is that's happening to these people. Like, what are they experiencing? What What is making fear strike them in the heart? Locusts. In a, in a word, I guess, yes. <laughs> well, so it's a locust plague. Um, they're in, it's really interesting. Uh, Lockwood goes on. There are a couple really good estimates of people um, estimating how many locusts are in these swarms. And these swarms are giant, like literal hundreds of miles wide and tens to hundreds of miles deep. Uh, and he goes on to tell the story of how, uh, I forget who it was. Was it C.V. Riley or was it? No, it was. Albert's Albert Albert Child. Albert yeah. Child of the Thank U.S. You. Signal Corps. Yeah. He like focuses his telescope on a target at a known distance of like half a mile and then points the telescope up. And if he sees locusts that are in focus, then he knows that they're at least that far away. And so that high, 
And so he, he gets an estimate that this swarm is at least half a mile high. And so now into you've the got, sky. Into, into the sky. The sky. Yeah. <laughs> so now you've got length, width, and depth, and you can estimate how big the swarm is. And it turns out it's it's hundreds of square miles in size. And right. if you get a number of locusts per square meter or whatever, then you can estimate how many locusts are in the swarm. It's cool. I, I did take some notes on that because I also find that very fascinating. Yeah, it give us some more like detailed. It was estimated to be a half mile deep, like into the sky. And it was 198,000 square miles of locusts based on like telegraph estimates. So he was like wiring people, figuring out where they were. Uh, just to put that into perspective, if you go from Maine south to Delaware and then west to the tip of Pennsylvania, that's what we're talking about. Like the entirety of New England is engulfed in locusts, essentially, but it's out west and everything is bigger out there. Like you could fit New England, I think, in Jody's County, maybe in the right. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. But that this is this is it's biblical. Like I, I can absolutely see why people would be terrified and think that this was the wrath of God. Because how else do you see that? Like that is that is cosmic horror <laughs> crawling and bristling in the air. Right, and these are like giant, like winged, chewing mouth part grasshoppers in this crazy form and i have some notes on like how they described it because i thought it was very poetical right like what it turns like the noon into dusk it's like tornadoes it's living wildfire tempest tempestuous hurricane of insect life clouds in the atmosphere described as a manifestation of weather because it was just like that filling the air right triggers for nightmarish memories for settlers fierce cannibalism and they talk about what a sensory experience it is so um the sounds sounded like wildfire crackling and it's like they're chewing and the smell of decay like everything just sounds horrible and damaging and and to bring everything just back to just being something that you definitely don't want to be part of yeah, it's very traumatic, right? Like these are people living through a natural disaster that moves, that's yes. that that moves on its own. Like it's alive and crawls and creeps. Uh I think that bringing up those those weather sort of metaphors that people used is very evocative. Like this feels like a tornado with teeth or a, a hurricane with six legs, you know. It 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 sweeps in and you hear them eating your entire livelihood. You hear them just destroying everything around you, and then they're gone, except they've left a present behind of of all their babies. They've laid eggs in the soil. Uh, Mike was mentioning some of these estimates. There was a farmer who mentioned, uh, who's mentioned as kind of going out and doing his own survey, and he digs up squares of earth on his farm, and he estimates that there's six, about 6.5 billion eggs on the seven acres of land that he owns, which is mind-boggling like i i i goggle thinking about some of this just like what these people I, i'm an entomologist and if i had seen this i would be like whoa <laughs> i need to go read the bible for a little bit like i i can't imagine being somebody who took advantage of a of a land grant from the federal government never had any experience probably with this kind of thing before you drag your family west of the mississippi river in in the hopes of land and fortune and bugs destroy everything. Like that's terrifying. Well, and, and 
just to go back to the egg estimate, it, there was another guy that also estimated a similar number. Like we've got two independent estimates that come within, a, you know, it's something like 750 to 950 uh, million eggs per acre. Um, and, you know, there are a couple million, hundreds of million off, but you're still in the high hundreds of millions. And two independent estimates came to roughly the same number. Like it's not like one guy just messed it up. Right. Um, like this is probably a real-ish, you know, estimate. It's an estimation. Yeah. Like it, it probably represents something that was happening then. Uh, so we're kind of hinting around the fact that like they sweep in, there's all that. What, what do they do when they get there? What do they eat? Everything. <laughs> well, there's, so it's not a joke. Like you've got this giant swarm that needs calories, right? To keep moving and to lay eggs. And they eat every bit of living plant um, to the ground. Uh, and there's reports like, you know, after all the plants are eaten, they will chew on the wooden handles of uh, shovels and other farm implements and just eat the wood because there's salts and amino acids in there from the sweat in you. There's reports of them eating dead animals because like, a, you know, there's something dead there and it's, it's food, it's protein. Um, they'll eat the clothes off your back. Uh, if you know, cotton or wool linens hanging out to dry, they will consume those and put holes in them or consume the whole thing. Um, it sounds like once the plant material is gone, they will eat any kind of organic, whatever they can come across that might even resemble food. Jody mentioned before this cannibalism aspect, this fact that they're eating each other. Mike was just talking about, you know, they'll eat animals, but the locusts themselves die and then they turn around and they scavenge each other. This is, it's brought up, I think, early on in the book, right, Mike? Yeah, on page 12, uh, Lockwood has a paragraph about it. And uh, uh, do you want me to say the bit about my problem with the over the top? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. We'll read it. Yeah. So I guess one of my criticisms of the book is that a lot of the language is really flowery and just so over the top that I find it like he could have just described it more directly. Uh, and my my note for this is page 12, over the top paragraph about cannibalism. And so I'll read it out uh, and, and perhaps let the listeners judge for themselves because it, it is interesting beyond the flowery language. Quote, although the settlers may have been astonished by the locust's veracity, they were appalled by the insect's fierce cannibalism. By flailing at the locusts, the farmers unwittingly crafted a grisly buffet. The surviving insects greedily consumed the corpses of their brethren with a dozen locusts descending on a carcass and jostling for position as they tore into the mangled body. Injured locusts were often eviscerated and dismembered while still alive. The locusts were driven not by a macabre lust, but a need for protein and fat, valuable sources of energy, essential nutrients for egg development, and substances that were in short supply in the prairies. Perhaps the settlers' revulsion reflected a powerful subliminal association between the locusts' gruesome propensities and the tales of human cannibalism on the frontier. <laughs> you don't like the Dahmer party being brought into this? The Donner party? I, I mean, maybe it's just the way that I read that, but <laughs> he could have just, like, he could have tightened that up a little bit. I would pay you a dollar for Paige if you read it like that. <laughs> there you go, Mike. Yeah, I sound really boring now because, you know, we have crickets that we feed our 
pets and they cannibalize each other. And I just say, oh, they ate each other. I should speak more dramatically. Like a scene from The Hills Have Eyes, they turned on one another before they were fed to the tarantula, saving one another from a grisly fate. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's, it's very evocative, I would say. Uh, it, it shows maybe, I guess that what I took from that is like, this is a desperate situation. You kill them, and then they turn your small victory into a Pyrrhic one by eating each other, and then the rest of them become more successful. <laughs> yeah, it's just more, it's more evil. It, they are evil in the front first part of the book. Yeah. And so they're evil to each other too. So this is just goes more evidence towards how demonic they are. So hungry, hungry grasshoppers gulping everything down. As Mike said, eating wooden handles, eating clothes off people's back. There's even one part where it's an apocryphal story, but somebody lies down to fall asleep and they're in the army. And then the locusts end up on their back. And if they hadn't rescued this man, he would have been eaten by them. I found that one difficult to believe. Like I'm a, I'm a heavy sleeper, but I think if I was being bitten by dozens of locusts, I would wake up. I, you think that you'd wake up by the sound of the impending locust storm descending upon you. Right. Yeah. All of their thousands of glistening wings or glittering wings. I did. I really liked that part of it because he kind of describes like the sound of all of these trillions of wings in the papery sound that they have. Um, and that is something that I hadn't really considered because you think of a single grasshopper, like besides banded wing grasshoppers, which crepitate, which is like the buzzing sound they make when they fly. But like, other grasshoppers that don't do that they like you don't hear them fly because it's just a single insect and they do have papery wings and it like but it's so subtle because they're so small you don't hear it but think of trillions of papery insect wings all flying at the same time and what that must have sounded like that that i had not considered before and i thought was really cool i, I i'm intrigued to hear that you say that because i i have thought about this like when i've ever i've thought about this book and just like the bits and pieces I've read before. I, I do like imagining sensory experiences with bugs and sound is one of those, right? Like the idea of hearing a trillion bugs at once. I love when I can go out and listen to the periodical cicadas, but that's them singing. This is different. Like it's them flying and coming in to ruin my entire life basically. So uh, <laughs> it would maybe have different connotations uh, if I were living there. We've alluded to some of the control. We talked about them going out and swatting at them. What were some of the other control methods you read about, Jody? I was going to say, you know what just occurred to me in the movie, the kid movie, um, A Bug's Life? Uh-huh. How the bad guys are hopper. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you could hear and they like do a... they do have a sound for when they fly yeah. into the mm-hmm. ant mound. Yeah. I was like, you're right. Actually, that may be what I'm hearing in my head when I imagine this. Yes, because that's what I pictured when we were talking about the bad guys. I'm like, they are the bad guys in A Bug's Life. Is that Kevin Spacey? Is he the bad grasshopper in that one? He is. That's meta. They knew back then. Yeah, meta. (laughs) But as one of our resident pest control experts, Jody, what were some of the methods of grasshopper killing that you picked up on in this book? Okay, so this is in the chapter called Humans Strike Back. And I would think that most people would like this chapter because there are a lot of contraptions and tools that they've come up with, This these ingenious ideas to try to um, control the locusts. So they had things that were like smashing, scooping, and sucking up locusts. And they had names 
like the they were usually named after the inventor. Right. So yours would be like the the Larson Locust Crusher. Yeah, right? that's but I think, <laughs> you nailed it. That's what that's what I would have named it. So um the Larsonator. Yeah, they, they would but they would make these machines and then uh they also had poison and I think Mike had something to say about the poison. Yeah, well, they had a bunch of other things that were not effective. Um, like they used smudge pots and burned smoke to try to keep the grasshoppers out. Evoked but, in the Laura Ingalls Wilder quote, quote that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, because uh, her pot, the dad, yeah. yeah, the dad in the story goes out, right? Yeah. And he comes back at noon, like defeated, because they don't the locusts don't care about the smoke. And covered in in soot, and his eyes are red from standing in smoke all night and morning. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was all to not. Uh, um, kerosene, coal, tar, sulfur fumes. All things to try and stop the swarm from descending, right? Like it's all in this vain effort of, of saying like, okay, maybe if I do this, they'll go away. They'll find another target. And it just sadly doesn't work. Um, it's it's a prevention method, unfortunately, that, that comes to no avail. Uh, some of the other stuff that I enjoyed was not just the physical or mechanical control options Jody brought up where they get sucked in and chopped up by a fan. Or they're rolled over and crushed. Which do you prefer, Jody? The chopping or the the smushing? I don't know. Maybe the chop. I was thinking of like snow blowers or things you put on the front of your uh-huh. or whatever they had at the time that would funnel them in and crush them up. There's some interesting things that they make a nice have. paste. Make a make a protein bar out of them. Maybe there is some biological control ideas. People talk about turning their turkeys and chickens loose on them. But what happens to those turkeys and chickens, Mike? They gorge themselves to death. <laughs> it, and then their they, meat is ruined too. Because yeah, they like do. A... Yeah, they mentioned that like the meat gets this yellow oily texture and is then unpalatable, which is I'm a little surprised about because okay. one, they can like you could feed them grass other grasshoppers and that doesn't happen. But also Rocky Mountain locusts themselves are edible to people. Like Right. We can cook them and eat them. So it's a little surprising that this happens to the birds. And and so I wonder how true it is. Yeah, I, I was surprised about that. Yeah, because later on, like towards the middle part of the book, there is a section on C.D. Riley enthusiastically talking about how to fry the grasshoppers, which I also was surprised by because I thought they ruined chickens. So, yeah, uh, yeah. And there's uh, and there's uh, he does talk about Native Americans eating Rocky Mountain locusts. Um, something that doesn't get talked about, I think, enough in this book because he does frame it from like the settler perspective, from the white perspective, heavily. Yes, <laughs> one of my biggest criticisms is that there's not enough about how the Native Americans thought of and treated Rocky Mountain locusts here. Um, but he does mention a little bit that, unlike with the white settlers when these swarms would come over and the native Americans still lived there, it was a bonanza because they ate the locusts. And so you can imagine like, yes, the plants are gone, but now you've got literal tons of protein out of nowhere, which is hard to get on the prairies. It's, you know, other, the only other big protein source are like Buffalo or bison. Um, And so it was a bonanza for the native Americans and they would, you know, prepare it in many different ways and crush it and save it and stuff. Um, and so there's a like one or two paragraphs about comparing how they dealt with the locusts to the settlers. Um, but yeah, like there's another example 
to get back to the chickens, like Native Americans readily consumed the locusts when they did arrive. And so again, it's just weird that that this happens with chickens. I'm not sure I believe it. Um, anyway. I think that's an important question to ask. Uh, perhaps we can consult with friend of the show, Dr. Amy Murillo of University of California, Riverside, to see if she knows what would happen in chickens to make locusts turn them into a spoiled meat source. But biocontrol doesn't work. There are some chemical options that are brought up. Paris Green, Mike, you had a note about, is it the Kansas mix? Uh, no, the curdle mix. Cur- oh, that's uh, it, yes. And I, like, they start off, uh, the curdle mixture is one pound of Paris Green, which is, uh, what, lead arsenate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, you know, arsenic and lead, incredibly toxic yeah. uh, to everybody. Uh, but interestingly, they mix one pound of Paris green with 50 pounds of horse manure because the locusts will feed them on the manure, which is, I think, interesting. Again, showing like they'll just feed on kind of anything when the plants run out. Uh, and then a pint of molasses to give it like a smooth mixy mixture so you can mix it up. Um, and so they're just like spreading this curdles mixture. And there's a couple other poison mixtures that get made. Uh, Bran just, uh, mixed together, right? Yeah. Paris green to make a paste. Very similar to a carbaryl-based bait that still exists for grasshopper control here in the U.S. Um, yeah, there are some chemical options. Probably, it's well, obviously not very effective. Yeah, like it doesn't, it still doesn't kill that many locusts because, yeah, you can poison them all, but like the their friends will just come in behind them. And I think that that actually brings up an interesting point that I hadn't considered in regards to dealing with locusts, which is what do you do with all of them after you do kill them? Uh, and the corpses of locusts kind of loom large in early parts of this book where they're pickled in the salt lake uh, and they smell quite pungently. Um, they fall dead on the ground and then you just have corpses everywhere. Uh, it doesn't sound very pleasant. Jody, what would you think it would smell like? Ugh, I mean, it already smells bad just having like five crickets decaying in a container. But I... Yeah. It, well, I actually I thought of you because <laughs> you and I one time we we kept taking whiffs of the dead Japanese beetles in the trash yeah. over for a yep. video. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I yeah. thought it, it's no, like it that. Terrible. Except, yeah, 10,000 times worse. Yeah. And that was part of the reason why water was contaminated too, right? Because all the decay of all the bodies were in there. And going back to what Mike said about the like not, I guess, contaminating chicken products or poultry products. And the reason why this led to that famine was because, well, not only did the locusts eat the grains, but their bodies contaminated the water. And then evidently, like you said, contaminated the eggs and the meat from the egg, the poultry that we're feeding on them. And so you're losing like your crops and your orchards, and then you're losing your water and You've lost all your pasture to make your cattle yeah. get bigger, so you have something right. to eat. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's a cascading environmental disaster. Uh, the last control thing I wanted to mention before we get back into this disaster that Jody's talking about is uh, people I think very astutely figured out like maybe if we kill the eggs, we can do something about this. Uh, their methods varied. It could be as simple as digging and crushing the eggs. Uh, Mike, can you describe how grasshopper eggs are laid? Yeah, so the female pushes her abdomen into the soil and then lays a packet of, you know, so many eggs. Uh, it varies by species. Um, lays this packet of eggs in the soil. And actually, Rocky Mountain locusts are neat because 
the females apparently could lay multiple uh, uh, clutches of eggs, which is weird for a grasshopper because a lot of species, when the female pushes her abdomen down into the soil, she can't like pull it back. Like she'll, she'll pull it out of the soil, but then she's got this big, long distended abdomen that just kind of drags behind her until she dies. Um, she can't like accordion it back up. Hmm. Um, so it's like a one shot and done for a lot of grasshopper species, but these Rocky mountain locusts could apparently, you know, push their eggs down, but the female didn't distend her abdomen so much. So she could lay multiple clutches of eggs. So that's a little bit different than, you know, many other grasshoppers. Right. So she reverts her ovipositor inside of her and then is able to unleash even more babies. (laughs) What a great mom. (laughs) So the eggs are down on the ground. You could dig them up and squish them. The other people decided to get a little more creative. Uh, well, you, could, multi- you could plow it up. Yeah, plow it up. Things would eat them. Yeah, but- as long as you can expose them to the surface or turn them so deep into the soil that they, the babies hatch and can't get up, like there's ways to kill them in the egg stage. But I think I know what you're getting at. Yeah, there's, there's a, perhaps a more explosive idea that you could yeah. use. <laughs> what would you use if you were going to try and blow them up? Well. I would use dynamite. Okay. Bold choice. What's well, obviously <laughs> like, like easy the to cigar get. of egg control <laughs> over a cigarette. Why no, would no. you pick dynamite? What? Why would I why? pick it? Yeah, why would you pick dynamite? I mean, I wouldn't, but that's what they did. But they did. They they put dynamite in the ground, they try to blow them up. Gunpowder is also employed as an explosive device. Uh bull whips at different variables were trying to at different intervals were used to try and keep them away from the field. I mean, obviously, you're going to try anything you can to keep the locusts away. Uh, some of the smell that we, Jody and I were chatting about is because they dig troughs and then the nymphs get stuck in the troughs, uh, the furrows that they build in the fields. And you just have hundreds of thousands of dead grasshoppers in there. They experimented and they found the perfect depth and angle of the trough. I thought that was very cool. Some pioneer ingenuity of uh, figuring out how to do that. It, it just anything and everything was being used to try and control these locusts kind of all to no avail. And what we've well, talked to, Oh, go ahead. Oh, just uh, the, the trough method for the nymphs actually, I think does end up working uh, fairly well um, because it was go through the book. All of these early control methods are aimed at the adults, mm-hmm. which is kind of the last stage. Like if they're there, like you're done there, there's nothing to do to control the adults. And we've kind of hinted around it. Like, all of the control methods that end up being effective and in, in often pioneered by uh, C.V. Riley and the Entomological Commission, which we'll get to in a bit, uh, they all target the eggs, which don't move and are you know in the soil and so easier to get at, or the nymphs, which do move but are flightless and so are restricted to the ground. And like you mentioned, if you dig a trough along a field where there's nymphs emerging from the ground, they will just march into it and then can't get out. And so you can get you know, a hundred meters of trench filled with 10 to 20 inches of grasshopper nymphs. And then you just cover it back over with soil and kill them all. Um, and one of the neat things that C.V. Riley and the commission did is like you said, figure out like the right width and the right depth to get as many grasshoppers as you can. And like every 10 feet, you dig an extra deep pit that like they get into the trench, but then fall into the pit. And so the pits fill up. Um, and that can be really effective because you catch them at this, stage where they can't get away ipm ipm i, I heard Cody's IPM. voice in my head multiple times <laughs> saying break the life cycle uh destroy the children <laughs> <laughs> uh, a very effective way of getting about this 
I think that this then butts up against maybe one of the last things we can talk about here today, which is the response of the American government and the various states. Mike already talked about the sort of vigils and prayer days that were held in an attempt to appease the deities, uh, the deity, I should say, and uh, try and get the grasshoppers to go away. I don't want to make light of this situation because we are talking about an unknown number of people who starved to death over successive years. I mean, this is depredation on on a massive scale across the middle part of the country. Um, I don't know that we've paid enough homage to the fact that these are all people who were given land that had been stolen from Native peoples uh, through various land grants. I, I don't know how in-depth you guys want to go into that. Well, do you want to just give a brief history of like why these settlers are here? Like what what is the U.S. government doing and what are these settlers doing and kind of What's the economic background that is pushing a lot of these people out of cities in the East? The, I would say the economic background is is sort of the classic case of, of imperial capitalistic exploitation, which is raw goods need to be acquired. And the most raw goods are found, I guess the most unclaimed raw goods are in the West, uh, despite being in territory that had been ceded through treaties to native peoples. Um, the federal government has decided to just basically go in and reclaim or claim all of that and then give settlers a chance to move west by saying, okay, if you're on this land and you tend it for X amount of time, it's yours. You get six acres or 160 acres. It's like 160 acres. Yeah, uh, which is not insignificant, obviously. Uh, it is, I would say, a difficult proposition agriculturally just because you're moving into arid places most frequently. Um, cattle is going to be going there, but all of this stuff that gets produced there is then going to be shipped back east to be used as part of uh, of major metropolitan areas. So you, you're already setting up this rural-urban divide. Um, you're setting up sort of an east-west divide, and you're pitting white people against native peoples. Is that a fair summation, Mike? I think so. And I, I, I just a couple things to add is that there's a at one point, there's a big economic depression in the late 1800s. And so that pushes a lot of people from the cities, like they're out of work, they have no money. And so free land in the West uh, seems like a really nice option because like, even if they're subsistence farmers, like, hey, they have food, which they're not getting when they're out of work in the cities. Uh, there's also the railroads play a big part of it because while a lot of this land does go to, to white settlers, the land right along the railroads is given to the railroad companies. So they're able to sell that off at a profit. And that land goes for a premium to white settlers because the closer you are to the railroad, the easier it is to get whatever you produce to market. And so there's this uh, incentive or it, it is capitalism versus the, like the, the, I don't want to say proletariat, but the common folks, like you've got these big robber baron, uh, right railroad magnets that are making money hand over fist because they're luring people out to the what the you know areas the of the west, west. yeah capital the t west. capital w yeah to to go farm and to ship those products back east and make them the railroad barons a lot of money both through direct sales of land and also through transportation fees there's also i think california looms large in this like you have to we have all of this conquered quote unquote conquered land in between the Mississippi and California and California exists as an entity more than 
places like Nebraska and Wyoming and the Dakotas, um, and you want to join those two pieces. And so you have to have people in there. Otherwise, it's just land and you can't really control it without Americans, I guess, that you could you could plug into there. Yeah. In, We're in not like historians, said, but yeah. <laughs> well, like you said, all of this is done at the uh uh not the benefit. What's the opposite of a benefit? Uh at the cost. At the cost, thank you, of the native peoples that we had moved there from the east. Like right. we told them, go out here, you can't be in the east anymore. And then a few decades later, like oh, you can't be here anymore either. Right. Uh so like that's not it and Lockwood kind of touches on it a little bit, but I mean it's really told from the white perspective and in Native Americans get get the short shrift even in the book. Um, yeah. which is a shame because I'd I'd be really interested to hear more about how they dealt with locusts historically and what they how they viewed them and if they had any kind of what kind of connections they had like culturally to the locusts. Um because I think that would be something interesting to to know. Well, I think even at a more mechanical level, it would be interesting to know, like what their their history of experiencing these outbreaks were. Because the way it's framed in this book, like this is the big one, but there were a couple of others sort of mentioned beforehand of Rocky Mountain locust outbreaks. How sporadic or how common was it when the land was maintained by Native peoples? I think that's that's an interesting nitty-gritty question of like did did these settlers do something to exacerbate the situation? I know that dry weather is pointed to as something uh, dry hot weather that lets them fly further and longer, but I don't know. I am I'm, I'm intrigued by some of those other possibilities. Yeah. Well, and they talk about that later in the book. Um when we get into the like details of like what causes locust outbreaks. Because that was one of the thoughts was Europeans came in and changed everything. And so now we're getting locust outbreaks when Native Americans didn't. But it turns out like there were Native American records of outbreaks to the what mid 1700s or at least early 1800s before Europeans moved in. So like they happened even when Native peoples lived there. Right. Um, something I was going to bring up at some point, I guess now is a good time. Uh, there was a paper uh, I didn't send it to either of you two, but it was just published this year where they describe a cache of Rocky Mountain locusts um, in a pit that was lined with algae. So they they presume that it was uh, Native Americans that uh, built the pit and stashed Rocky Mountain locusts. Uh, it was along the edge of this lake. And so they think that their locusts died in the lake, similar to the Great Salt Lake, got washed on shore. And then there's this bonanza of food. Uh, and they dated it to 14,400 years ago. That's awesome. So we've got this record of now really far back. It's also the earliest record of human habitation in this area. Um, so they're paleo Indians. Um, I hope that's the right term. I'm sorry if it's not. Uh, but it's this oldest record of human habitation. And like, but it's also from the, this cool entomological perspective of almost certainly a locust swarm because there's no other way to get lots of Rocky Mountain locusts with long wings in one area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's in Nevada. Like at the very southern edge of where Rocky Mountain locusts kind of do this swarming, um, and so we've got this record of a swarm from you know that's awesome fourteen thousand years ago. So like, yes, they were doing this for as long as we've got records of humans being in in the Americas. 
and people gobbling them up. It sounds like yeah, <laughs> and use them as food. Use them as food. Uh, I guess that that'll bring us back around to so there's this problem. We've talked about what they're doing, um, how they're impacting people, why there are people there being impacted. Um, the federal government is not super sympathetic to the plight of these people that they have uh, tangential or tantamount to convert co- coerced right yeah into coming west like uh i don't know if that's quite the right word but they they've definitely lured them out there and they are like yeah i guess they can just starve to death there's there's one general in the army uh, general ord i think was his name right mm-hmm. who uses his position to try and and speak for the people of nebraska in particular um and convinces the government to give out clothes which don't seem to be the requisite item <laughs> uh, needed for this problem, but the food idea, like giving out food for for these starving people from the army, eventually gets utilized, but it only happens one time. The religion thing really does sort of loom large. Like there's there's this uh, puritanical idea of they aren't working hard enough. They deserve to be poor. This is a sin being punished. Things like that. So the the government doesn't really step in as much until the formation of the Entomological Commission. Uh, and we kind of alluded to this This brings in C.V. Riley. And what did you guys know of or think of C.V. Riley before we read this book? I guess I just knew he was like the father of economic entomology. I didn't know he was so, I didn't know he was so handsome. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> no, they describe him that way, right? Like, he's, he's an Italian musician or an Italian poet and a scientist position or something like that right well he's british but they say he looks like right right um i i mean i have to agree he's a he's everybody should go look at a photo of him he's got this like really nice mustache and this kind of wavy hair he's he's handsome thank you (laughs) he was and he was 510 at a time where i think that would have been a a big standout yeah (laughs) Yeah. Well, the reason uh, I mention that is because when they're describing people, like his description, like there's this physical description of him. And I don't know if there is for like every other individual in the book. Right. I actually, I am glad you said that, Jody, because there is there's like there's another guy who's described as the short, fat owl compared <laughs> to. Riley. Oh, okay. uh, there are other people that have like hawk like noses, all of these sort of animal characteristics. I always find this fascinating when reading history or biography because it makes me desperately want to know, like, if somebody wrote the biography of Arthropod, like, oh, what would <laughs> what would Jody Mike and I be like? The shaved buffalo, the fox face, <laughs> slender, so like, yeah. five foot ten inch uh, carriage is slender, his, like carriage. his carriage, his five foot ten carriage would have suggested, with his luxuriant wavy hair, prominent eyebrows, and extravagant handlebar mustache. I identified with the the prominent eyebrows part of this description. It's much Not more to... like an Italian artist than like an American economic entomologist. <laughs> <laughs> Not to get us too far off topic, but uh, my wife and I are watching through uh, Seinfeld right now, which I like my grandparents watched, but I never paid much attention. And there's, have you seen the episode where they go to the movies and everybody kind of misses each other and they're describing their friends to like the... <laughs> The person at the front of the movie theater is like, yeah, have you seen the guy, big eyes, face like a frying pan? 
<laughs> reminds me of this right now. Yeah, for sure. I can see why. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, beyond C.V. Riley being maybe the most handsome entomologist ever, uh, he's also the father of economic entomology historically and looms large in this story as he is named the head of a commission, an entomological, entomological commission that is dedicated to dealing with this locust. Uh, I was expecting this to be sort of the middle meat of this book, and it seems like it's a very quick story. They get formed, and then the locust slowly starts to disappear, and they kind of get to take credit for it, but it, it, it clearly isn't their doing. But they do get some cool research out of it. Um, this group includes C.V. Riley, and then who are the other folks? I've got it written down. Uh, Cyrus Thomas and Alpheus Packard. Good name. Alpha Packard, it sounded like was his nickname. Um, I, I guess we talked about um, our good buddy with the spongy moth, uh, Truvalo, and some of his contemporaries. They are also active at this time, Agassiz and everybody else. Um, all of these autodidacts, right? Like people that became entomologists, they're described as Luth, or what is it? Minister turned lawyer turned entomologist and farmer turned poet turned artist turned entomologist. They're a fascinating trio. Like, aren't they medical? One's a medical doctor. Yep. Yeah. Pack or Thomas in particular is, is described as a lawyer who turns into a gentleman scientist, converts to a minister for two years, decides the ministry isn't for him, and then becomes like just a scientist. Um, in Riley himself is like. He grew up in Great Britain, but was sent to France and then Germany for like a classical art education. So he is like an artist before he leaves uh, Europe at the age of 17 to come to America and work on farms. Right. Yeah, Goes to, to Kankakee County. Yeah. And it's like a farmhand for a number of years before he like his artistry and writing ability are recognized. And he starts like writing for a farmer's magazine. And yeah, all of them have these weird multiple of them are ministers at one point or another like it seems like at this point in time you could just go out and do if you had like the connections you could just be whatever you want to be like i'm bored with this i'm going to do something else and they all have these crazy backgrounds yes i i think it is crazy how much you could just sort of flit around uh career-wise back then we've spent our lives dedicate like we spent what each of us 10 years or so dedicated to becoming what we are today. And like it would back then it would be like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go be a farmer. I'm going to go be a minister. I don't know. It, it's a fascinating time. Yeah. And like everybody it's brought up a couple of times. Um, like this is right around the time that Darwin presents his theory of evolution and Riley is like a staunch Darwinist. Um, but some of the, one of the, I forget who Thomas or Packard, one of them is like in the Lamarckian evolution. That's Packard. Uh, it's Packard. Yeah. Uh, and Riley is like at loggerheads with Agassiz because Agassiz is not a Darwinist. Uh, and so like the fact that evolution is is a hot topic at this time is like a bone of contention between some of these guys. And we should mention like they're all men. Uh, all men. Yeah. <laughs> it was all. all it was, the whole thing was all men. Sorry, Jody. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess the other part that I find interesting is like 
not necessarily that they that they don't solve the problem. They do come up with some cool IPM tactics that we've alluded to, some really cool applied research uh, sort of forebears for for folks like Jody and I, maybe less so Mike. They don't seem to, one of them is a taxonomist by by choice, but the other two seem to sort of look down upon it. Uh, I wondered how you felt about the discussions regarding Townsend Glover, the uh, head of the USDA entomology division who is described as like, a gopher in his hole because he won't go do anything. <laughs> yeah, I I I did have notes on that. I felt like it was so it's set up that like like CV Riley hates taxonomy because he doesn't see the use in it. In particular, he doesn't like Glover because all Glover does is sit indoors and describe new species. And so it's set up like like Riley does not appreciate taxonomists at all. But I'm not sure from that reading that I agree with that statement because it seems like Riley appreciates taxonomy in the light of going out and helping people like in, in, in an extension or in an applied way, like you have to know what you're working with to know how to control it. And so like that, like taxonomy is good for that. But if you're not interacting with farmers and getting that taxonomy used in some way, then he has less use for it. And I think partly he doesn't have a use for Glover because Glover never comes out of his office. Right. I absolutely agree. I think that it, the way that it doesn't bear out that he doesn't like taxonomy. He he is ticky tacky in some instances in the even in the letters that they describe in here about like this is you're marking this wrong, this is named wrong, like you're using these names that are old and and not used anymore. I, I think he believes very strongly in it, but he views this as somebody who should be a peacetime president, but it's war and we need a wartime president, somebody that's going to like take direct action against this problem. Like you can't just find new flies. You got to, you got to help these people out. That's your job. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Right. As the leader of the USDA. Right. Uh, so Riley is clearly a firebrand. Like he, he is pithy. Uh, he makes fun of people. Um, his mentor sort of taught him that, but he's also very politically savvy. Um, and he positions himself to end up in charge of this commission and it doesn't sound like they really get along. They're not the triumvirate that we are. Uh, they they don't seem to enjoy one another's company. Uh, all of this Lamarckian versus Darwinian controversy marks a lot of their discussion. Um, but even if they don't solve the problem of the Rocky Mountain locust, Jody, would you agree that this has impact on history? Like, what is it that you see that comes out of this? Oh, yeah, for sure. They definitely made a huge impact. Isn't that how Entomological Society of America is developed eventually? Yeah, the American Association for the Advancement of Science that gets mentioned uh, that Riley is is mixed in with eventually becomes or spins into the uh, the Entomological Society of America. Beyond that, Riley eventually ends up in charge of the USDA, kind of uses of the USDA Entomological Section, I should say. So he kind of uses this as a springboard into that. Well, and getting back to the work of the commission, um, like you're right, they don't solve the problem. Like this is the last major outbreak of Rocky Mountain locust, and it kind of goes away. And for the first 20, 30, 40 years, everybody's expecting like it's going to come back. And it's this slow realization into the 20s and 30s and 40s, the 1920s and 30s and 40s, like it's it's not coming back. We've won. Um, but 
but also there's these other grasshoppers that are also outbreaking and they're not quite Rocky Mountain locust levels, but like they take the attention away until people start like decades later realizing Rocky Mountain locust is gone. <clears throat> Excuse me. But even though the commission didn't solve the problem, like they they research and describe so much of the rock the life cycle and the behavior and the internal and external anatomy. Like there are four giant, like 500 page book, uh, books, their reports uh, from the Entomological Commission that they put out. So many thousands of pages that are published on Rocky Mountain Locust in like size seven font. Um, I actually have copies of all of the four reports. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, Take some pictures. We'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. And they, I got them because a couple of them have these gorgeous maps in them of where Rocky Mountain locusts are found. Um, and one of the major things that the commission does figure out is that uh, they're, because they're locusts, they're migratory. So there's this permanent zone along the Rocky Mountains where Rocky Mountain locusts always occur year after year after year. And that's probably, we didn't really talk about phase transformation in locusts yet. Um, we'll get to was, that probably next episode. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about what's what's scientifically happening in the next one. Okay. Um, but that's where the solitary phase occurs. Uh, and due to various things that we'll talk about next episode, every now and again, you get this eruption of the migratory phase of the locust. And so they have these gorgeous maps where like, here's the permanent zone. Here are the different areas where the migratory phase will come and across the United States and then go back to the, the permanent zone at the end of it. And it takes this, you know, three to four to five to six year loop coming through the country, devastating everything in their wake over multiple generations, rather like uh, monarch butterflies flying north uh, from the Mexico in the winter, where they take multiple generations to get from Mexico to Canada. Um, and so you've got this amazing set of of information and data that they produce on Rocky Mountain locust and up until we started looking into things like fruit flies uh Rocky Mountain locust was probably the most investigated in in for word count published on uh insect in history because of these reports it's pretty amazing to think about it's scientific they're, they're revolution hefty. i wish i had one because like you drop it and it's like heavy <laughs> That was the first time that had ever been done that there was a like a type of a task force or group that could go that in depth and have this science like this database like have it all in one place. Well, yeah, to your point, like it's the first time that the government ever empowers a body of scientists to go solve a specific problem, Um, and it kind of sets up the use of science and the place of science in solving these kind of problems in America for, you know, until now, um, this is the first time that they're like, here's an issue. Let's send some scientists at it and see if they can figure it out. Uh, and let's pay them to do it. And in something, John, you didn't really get at, but they talk about how related to the federal government giving direct payments or, or help to farmers, like they debated, about how to fund this commission because people didn't want to. Right. And $25,000, like it was a lot of money at the time, but for the federal government, it wasn't that much. And that was even too much. And they knocked down yeah. what they would fund the commission with from 25 to 18,000. From five Sounds to familiar. three people. Yeah. And from five to three people. Yeah. Can I read uh, this part? Yeah. Go for it. 
Riley and his colleagues made a series of fundamental discoveries that set the stage for developing effective control methods. The commission pioneered the practice of integrated pest management, IPM, a strategy in which complementary control methods are used synergistically to prevent or suppress pest outbreaks. Can you read the next part of that? And a method that was supposedly discovered a century later, when in fact the unoriginal practice was merely given a clever name and acronym, as entomologists realized the sole reliance on insecticides was doomed. That, I guess if we're talking about parts where we took issue with, that was one for me. Uh, I thought that was a weird aside. Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, maybe it's because I'm teaching IPM this semester, but what maybe these folks were using integrated pest management, but I don't think that was the philosophy that they were building at, right. at this time. Like, I think that that definitely comes later with the catchy acronym and, and name. So <laughs> yeah, like if they uh, would have found like we could kill them all with kernels mixture, they would have just if that was effective, that's just what they would have done. Yeah, yeah. I I, I guess that, that that's my umbrage with it is they they just want to destroy this thing. Like it doesn't matter how if it's an integrated approach, great. But yeah, uh maybe that's a that's a topic for an episode devoted to the history of IPM, which sounds like riveting podcasting. Uh <laughs> Uh, I guess if we're going to conclude here, uh, we've talked about the the commission, kind of the history of all of this. We're going to get into what happens next, which is a bit mysterious, uh, a bit paranormal. The aliens come in and take the locusts, maybe. Um, this is, it's it's an interesting little thing to dig into next, but we have sort of set the historical stage. I wanted to kind of end by talking directly to Jody, maybe, uh, as our resident Heartland entomologist, as a, as a Nebraskan if not by birth, but by choice. Do you see a, a historical residue of this in Nebraska? Like, do people talk about this at all? Do people do people run away from grasshoppers in Omaha? I think they do. I do yeah. get calls about grasshoppers, even just tiny baby ones eating vegetables. I think there's historically something that they're fearful of, that they're going to take over. And even though, which I guess we'll talk about the next episode, that locusts and grasshoppers are not exactly the same thing. Same damage, same destructive behavior. But there is a fear of grasshoppers. Do you guys ever get calls about how to control grasshoppers where you are? Nope. I think I've had one in the since I moved here. There are a lot of books, a lot of resources and literature about different grasshoppers in Nebraska and how to identify them. There's a large There's, handbook from UNL about grasshoppers, right? I've not read it, but yes, <laughs> I imagine I think there that is. You, you, you probably have a free one sitting on your shelf, even if you didn't want it. Oh, did you leave it for me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, maybe. Uh, I just, I was curious about that because... When I lived in Nebraska, I felt I felt that there was some sort of hangover from this. Like, I don't want to say a cultural memory or a genetic memory or how whatever weird stuff we could get into there, but it does seem like this thing that they they somehow remember that the there was a time when locusts would denude the entire state of Nebraska. And when you see a grasshopper crawling around out there, it seems to elicit more of a response than it does on this side of the Mississippi. And definitely there are more people calling cicadas locusts than anywhere I've ever known <laughs> other than um, Nebraska. So 
they they also hate locusts. I mean, they hate locusts, but they also associate that with cicadas and they'll call them locusts, which drive me insane. Yeah, that's an entomological Gordian knot that we have not untangled yet. So uh, I think that if I'm hearing right, we all uh, have enjoyed our trip through the first half of this book, uh, maybe three and a half to four stars out of five. <laughs> I believe was thrown about well, before. That, so that's mine. What uh, do you guys have? If you were to rate it out of five stars, like what do you guys think? I'm gonna let Jody go first. I mean, I I, I agree with that. There's more. It's more beneficial to know the stuff than not have read it. I mean, there's a lot of weirdness that I didn't like, but the good stuff that I think I needed to know as an entomologist and someone living in Nebraska. It's decent. Yeah, I'd go four, four out of five, probably. I like reading about the history of history of science. So uh, for me, this was interesting. But I think that the next part is probably going to be even more interesting. So we can tantalize our readers or our listeners <laughs> to come back <laughs> and tune into the next episode. Uh, we'll have the second half of Locust. Hopefully, like I said, you're reading along and, and maybe you can send us your thoughts and comments on Twitter. Uh, you can find the show there, Arthro underscore pod show. You can find our web presence at arthro-pod.blogspot.com. We are on all of your favorite podcatchers, uh, Podcast Addict, Spotify, uh, Stitcher. We are arthro-pod on all of those platforms as well. Don't forget the dash or you won't be able to find us. If you like the show, it really helps us to get more visibility. If you give us a rating or a review, um, we would really appreciate that. And if you want to find each of us online and talk to us about what you'd like to see in the future, or if you just want to ask us a bug question, you can do that on Twitter for as long as it exists. I'm at Bugman John. I'm at Chody Bugs Me, UNL. I'm at mscavarla 36 And when it falls, maybe we'll we'll have a Tumblr or uh, we'll go on Mastodon. I haven't tried that one yet, but you know, I, have, I haven't heard great things. Uh, there's well, Mike, come on. <laughs> I'm, kind of, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for I'm waiting. Twitter to die, and then like everybody's like, "Oh, this is where I went. This is the best place." Right. So it's like we'll a whale. Where fall. Everybody lands. Yeah. It's like a whale fall at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about the Rocky Mountain locust. Tune in next time to learn about where it goes, what happens to it and why we started this book in a glacier. So we'll see you then and there. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time, same bug time, same bug channel, as the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging. Uh, my name is Lon Jarson. You're Lon Jarson? <laughs> <laughs>